Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Nizar Hassan and I'm joined as usual by Benjamin Red. How are you doing, Ben? I am doing great, Nizar. Why? Uh, do we have a cabinet? <laughs> well, no, not yet. It's uh, it's the middle of August. You know, I, I, I don't think that we're going to be seeing a cabinet uh, soon. It's been 81 days now. since Haru, wow. Yeah, so, so we're getting into that time. Uh, but I still feel like, ah, we got another month or so left, which uh, I, I've heard, though, there are rumors flying. Yeah, I've received a couple of WhatsApp messages, at least, saying these are the names that of the That sounds totally ministers. legit, by the way. Yeah, yeah, totally it's very legit. credible. Very credible sources saying that um, these are going to be the ministers with the names and everything. But one especially funny rumor was that Jabran Basile would be a minister of state, which I found really nice and, and funny <laughs> as a rumor, because it said Jabran Basile would be the minister of state for presidential affairs, which is like, like you know, I think oh, it was a mockery yeah, thing yeah, um, yeah. to this whole Aoun family business kind of <laughs> aspect. But yeah, what what other major news do we have this week? So it, it's the middle of August. It's right before Hajj, uh, the the time uh, when Muslims from around the world go to Mecca um, uh, to do their pilgrimage. And so we are seeing that this this affects Lebanon because you know roughly two thirds of the population is Muslim, and so we're seeing a lot of departures from our airport right now. MEA, Middle East Airlines, just announced that like for the Hajj period they're gonna have like seventy flights going mm-hmm. to uh, going to Jeddah. Um, which is a lot more. They usually have like two per day or whatever. So this is probably something like twice as many departing flights as they usually have just to account for these like 12,000 pilgrims that are expected to leave through uh, Beirut International Airport, right? Mm -hmm. But the reason this is uh, more interesting than normal is because the airport's already like crazy over capacity. Okay. And so like it's built for like 6 million people and already like last year they they had 8.2 million going through it. Um, and so we're already over capacity. There's already all these complaints. Uh, you know, summer months are always the high months, and especially August. August is usually the most traveled month for uh, for the for the airport. And so we're adding on top of all of this stuff, the Hajj pilgrimage. Yeah. <laughs> and so like wait lines are going to be even worse. Uh, there was a problem with like the AC failing a couple of weeks ago. Like all of these things are just going to be bad for this month until passenger numbers start to fall off, right? But we do have plans to expand the airport, don't we? Yes, but that's like sort of a long-term plan. That's part of the the capital investment plan, or uh, sorry, capital investment program uh, that they unveiled at the CEDAR conference uh, in in Paris in April. Uh, But this is like, it wouldn't even get started really until 2020 at the earliest. So... I see. we're, we're, We're looking to have overcrowding at our airport for the next couple of years at least. Speaking of departing Lebanon, though, we had our uh, general security uh, head, uh, Abbas Ibrahim, went on a visit uh, to Iran and visited Nizar Zakka, uh, who is a Lebanese guy. He also has like an American residency, but he's Lebanese and he was uh, taken into custody uh, when he was traveled to Iran back in 2015. And it's been sort of like a, a, a big deal here because his family is really been uh, annoyed and upset that the Lebanese authorities seemingly have not been doing a lot to get him out of Iranian jail, mm-hmm. right? And so finally, this is, this is probably the biggest uh, the, the biggest movement that we've seen on this. Uh, Abbas Ibrahim, the head of general security, actually going and visiting. So we don't know, nothing like, there was no, nothing announced that, oh, he's going to be released or anything like that. But this is something very significant uh, that he visited and that they announced that he visited, Right. But why is Nizar Zaka in Iranian prisons in the first place? They think he's a spy. But he's the guy who's an activist for internet freedom, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay, yeah, yeah. 
here inside Lebanon, we also had um, the issue. It, it came to the uh, it, it came to our attention that the governor of the Baalbek Hermel province has been receiving death threats. Um, so th this is a guy. He was seen as seen uh, as sort of being behind this raid that killed this really big like drug lord uh, mm -hmm. in the Bekaa Valley last month. Um, yeah. It was supposedly like Lebanon's Escobar, uh, a guy named Ali Zaid Ismail. And so supposedly the governor has been receiving death threats since then. The head of the ISF and the Interior Ministry reportedly have both urged him to stay away from his own province. And so mm -hmm. reportedly he's staying in Beirut and he occasionally goes back to Baalbek Hermel, uh, but like with heavy security and everything. Uh, <laughs> and so it's just very, very strange that the governor himself does not live in his yeah. province, you know? Yeah. We also had, I think this is a, an interesting story. We also had uh, Mireille Aoun, the daughter of Michelle Aoun, who we spoke about just last week on this yep. program. She came out and made like a big splash uh, uh, in uh, Al Jumhuri newspaper. She came out with sort of like this really big interview that did two big things. She blamed Meshnuk, the interior minister, for the naturalization decree mess. You guys will remember there was this naturalization decree for like 400 or so people. And, and everybody was asking, you know, how did this happen? There was no transparency behind it. And it, it really caused a lot of consternation amongst the political class. Aoun himself, President Aoun himself, received a fair amount of criticism for this. Because uh, he signed the decree. Obviously. Yeah, he, his name was on it. Um, and so she came out in Al Jumhuriya this week and blamed the interior minister for the entire thing, right? And then she also, the second big thing that she did in this interview was she said that uh, her brother-in-law, Gibran Basile, uh, the leader of the Free Patriotic Movement, had decided to allow MPs to be ministers in the next government, which is a big announcement. Right? Yeah. We, we were all expecting it, but this is sort of a big announcement. And so, like, to me, it's very instructive that this is Murray coming out and saying this. Yeah, she really makes like big political statements. I can't think of another time that she is. So, and, and she's also, remember, she's rumored to be in the running to be a minister. Mm -hmm. So it almost looks like this was sort of like a test drive. Like, okay, let's put her out in the public eye a little bit mm -hmm. uh, with this very prominent announcements and sort of see how it goes. Uh, so I don't know, maybe we'll be seeing more of Murray in the future. But... For sure, we'll have Basile in the next government. I think we can safely say that. Yeah. And probably yeah. Shamir Rukus or these big names from the FPM, Ilyas Busab, etc. Likely, likely, yeah. yeah. And then I, th I think the, the other big stories of this week all really revolved around energy and electricity, mm -hmm. uh, which, which is something we're going to get into a little bit later on the program. So first off, we had uh, the Beirut MP, Paula Yaoubian, who we, we've spoken about, I think, a fair amount on this program, uh, just like the one civil society candidate to win uh, election to parliament. She held a, a press conference on Tuesday coming out like totally against Beirut's so-called waste to energy plan. Beirut wants to build uh, inc an incinerator in order to sort of solve two problems, two birds, one stone. Uh, they they want to get rid of waste and produce more electricity, right? Mm -hmm. And so, like, the the city's behind this. They want to do this. and But Paulia Obian came out and said, no, totally against this. Uh, it'll be 
hugely problematic. There will be there are health reasons, uh, a, a myriad of re- reasons not to do this. And, and there was like quite a lot of mobilization, especially online against it. Like we have to mention. Yeah, this is this is very much like a, a cause celeb, right? Yeah. And, and becoming more so. The environment itself, I think, in Lebanon has become much more and more politicized since 2015 and the movement related to the garbage crisis. So this kind yeah. of accumulates. Right, right, right. I, I think it's uh, interesting to note at this news conference, we also had Shamil Rukos of the FPM and uh, Jean Talouzian, who is uh, in the uh, Lebanese forces bloc, uh, widely seen as uh, representing Antoun Sahnawi. Okay. Uh, also there, they reportedly also signed a petition against these incinerators. So we may end up seeing sort of, so we've, we've got these three different Christians from different sides of the political spectrum all coming together against mm-hmm. this plan. Maybe this is sort of like the nucleus of a, sort of a, a broader coalition against the incinerators. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, we also had the the generator operators threatening to shut down uh, over this this metering. You've heard about this, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So the government wants generator operators to install meters because right now they're just charged. The, the generator operators just charge like a flat fee. If you're hooked up to the generator, you pay X amount every month, and that's it. The government wants these to be metered. The generator operators don't. Yeah, (laughs) this is a very popular, I think, like proposition that we have meters, and therefore we pay what we consume. But in a lot of villages, I think in most of them, we don't have that. And people just pay subscription fee that is flat, and also that is usually much more expensive than the electricity they're getting from the state. So um, even if they don't live there full time, they would have to pay two bills and a, a huge yeah. amount of money, even if they're not barely using any electricity. So right, and so the, like the idea is that if this goes through, then generator operators will be getting uh, less revenue yeah. from their customers, right? And so they're they're against it, so supposedly of uh, because of this, and uh, and so there's this sort of back and forth right now between the generator operators and and the government. We had a meeting with uh, the economy minister and the interior minister uh, and I think the energy minister this week and and then basically United Front, FPM uh, and Mustafa coming out saying, no, that we are going forward with this. We will make sure that these meters are installed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's uh, interesting that the government took this step because usually what they do is um, tell all the generators the price that they have to charge customers and almost no one charges people this this price. Because usually the price is set by the Ministry of Energy. So, for example, they tell them that you have to charge people uh, a certain amount of money that is actually pretty affordable. And then all generators like charge people more. So I think because they could not enforce the prices, now they're saying the only way we can moder- regulate this is because we're already going to houses to, to uh, collect bills and to check the meters of the electricity company. Then we can also check if they have meters for the generators. Or like yeah. know like uh, for sure whether people are paying according to what they consume or not. So it's a smart thing to do. To, I think. Yeah, but I I think we're not we're not quite there. We haven't reached a resolution here yet because we yeah. we're still having this war of words between the two sides, between the government on the one side and the generator operators on the other side, right? And so we're we're gonna have to see where this lands in the end. Yeah, it's funny though that they're threatening to shut down their generators, which is their only source of income. You know, people will live without electricity, but they will literally <laughs> just yeah, go yeah. out of business. Right, right, right. Um, and, and speaking of generators, uh, generator owners going out of business, the ones in Kesarwen are going out of business. <laughs> As of this week, uh, supposedly, uh, the, the third power barge 
arrived in Zukmakail and was hooked up. As of Wednesday, it started producing uh, electricity. It added 150 megawatts to the grid. And supposedly now in Kesarwan and parts of uh, Jebel Lemetin, they're getting like like 22 to 24 hours of electricity even, uh, wow. which is really incredible uh, for, for these residents. And it means if you own a generator there, of course, you're you're not going to be getting any money uh, as long as this power barge is there, right? Exactly. And I think we should remind our listeners, we talked about this issue in the previous episode. So to know how this whole thing happened and how the barge arrived to Zouk Mikhail in the first place, you can check episode 13. Yeah, uh, but one of the interesting things about this whole power barge is that it's only adding 150 megawatts to the grid. It's designed, it could be adding 235 megawatts, mm-hmm. right? And it's, so it, it's operating, you know, significantly below capacity. And I think that just sort of like speaks to, it's sort of like a microcosm of the of, of the problems in the electricity sector in general in Lebanon, right? Yeah, exactly. We're getting free, free electricity from this barge and we can't even get all of it, right? Yeah, yeah. We, <laughs> we, we can't even capitalize on this, uh, it, which should be so easy to do, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and so, like, so if we look at the main problems in, uh, in the Lebanese electricity sector, well, okay, obviously we've got this deficit, right? So we're producing about 2,200 megawatts, mm-hmm. uh, but peak demand in August 2018 is probably something like 34, 3,500 megawatts. So we're down by like over a third. Yeah. Uh, we've got this deficit. Uh, and that's why we have electricity cuts. Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, typically this would be if, if everything were treated equally, then we'd have like probably nine hours of cuts a day everywhere in Lebanon, mm-hmm. like a little bit more than a third of the day, right? Yeah. But because of, you know, the way things are done, Beirut only sees three hours a day, typically, uh, of power cuts, uh, but the rest of Lebanon gets like half the day, 12 hours gone, yeah. right? We, we also have the issue of just like the, the power grid not being up to snuff. So not only is there a production issue, but like the network that carries it is not has not been well maintained is not uh it has not been built up to uh to to fully uh utilize the capacity uh, okay. of what we can produce so it, it, like this power barge that's docked in Zukmakail like the, the network just can't handle it right that's why it's not producing the full 235 megawatts right uh, so we're losing something like 15% of the electricity we produce because of this technical problem yeah, we've got technical losses, and we, but we've also got theft, right? Exactly. And theft is, I think, uh, reports estimated to be around 20% of electricity. So I think this takes a lot of political rhetoric. Like a lot of people speak about theft and bill collection as the main problems in electricity. But together, they only amount to 25% of the electricity that we already produce, which itself is but not barely enough to cover the needs of the country. So the main yeah. problem, as you said, is electricity production. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and then all of this comes and hits the state finances particularly hard as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, as far as like subsidies go, the government pays something like $1.4 billion a year to cover costs for consumers. Uh, in, in 2017, this was about 13% of primary expenditures, like primary expenditures from the state budget, 13% of them went to EDL, the state uh, electricity company, mm-hmm. which is a huge, huge amount, uh, you know, to be paying. But I think like speaking of that specifically, yeah. 
it's important to distinguish like these subsidies that we are paying uh, these 1.4 billion dollars a year uh, in terms of subsidies like describing them as subsidies is different from what a lot of people usually discuss them at which is that they are losses for the company they are not really losses they are just what the state is paying on behalf of electricity consumers yeah right so this is a very important distinction because when we will talk about privatization later, but this is uh, described as a problem. The problem is that the loss that the electricity company is losing money. It's rather that the state is paying on behalf of people for this electricity. So it's yeah. a different issue. Right, right, right. Um, let's go back and, and just describe, like give a very quick blow-by-blow history of electricity in Lebanon. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the first electricity concession, it, it was in 1906. So we've had electricity in Lebanon for like 112 years. This is not a new thing, all right? <laughs> and uh, EDL, uh, Electricity du Liban, was created in 1964. It provided actually an excess of electricity to the country, like more than 24 hours of electricity, you know, which is great uh, until the Civil War happened. Mm-hmm. And then in the Civil War, you saw that capacity and the network all just get, you know, blown to pieces. And so in uh, the 90s, the decade m- immediately following the Civil War, we had this huge push to rebuild, right? And, and mm-hmm. I'm talking about everything, right? Rebuild everything in Lebanon. And a huge part of that was the electricity sector. People wanted to get back to that 24 hours of electricity that they remembered having before the Civil War. Uh, and so we had all of these projects, you know, uh, like hundreds of millions of dollars uh, being pumped into uh, building plants, you know, the Zahrani plant, the Deramar plant, uh, all of this stuff happened basically in the 1990s. And then you get to the 2000s and all of this seems to stop. Everything sort of grinds to a halt. Uh, you don't see any new uh, power plants coming online. Actually, the opposite. Because of like uh, issues with maintenance and everything, you start seeing power plants start to operate below capacity. And you, you've got like turbines, uh, like Zook uh, Unit 3 stopped working in 2001, mm-hmm. for instance. You know, only one of the units at GA was actually maintained. The other four shut down at some point. You've got mm-hmm. this lost decade where nothing was really done uh, in this sector. And to give a bit of context, this is the time where Lebanon started facing the huge public debt problem. And the political rhetoric was that we should cut down on expenses as much as possible um, to uh, make up for the increasing public debt. So there was more and more a discussion of privatizing electricity and not making new investments in it as a way of reducing public expenditure. So in line with this uh, privatization rhetoric, We had the 2002 law passed by parliament, which said that a new electricity regulation authority should be created. And this authority would be giving out licenses to private companies to um, build power plants and then sell power to the state. But it would also like have a vision for the electricity sector and basically regulate the whole sector. But this was not created and is not here yet. It exists in all the political platforms of like many political platforms of political parties and groups but it's not, it hasn't been created yet. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so we had the, like this period that things just didn't happen despite this law, right? Despite exactly. this. And, and then that really ends, though, in, two, in 2010. Uh, the Minister of Energy at the time, a certain Gibran Basile, mm-hmm. comes out with this comprehensive plan. Um, and, and to his credit, I think it really sort of started uh, kicking off reforms in this sector and, and building in the sector again. And it was a huge plan. It was like $5 billion from the government, from outside, from the private sector, 
Um, and it was supposed to produce, like, from from my perspective, what sounds like astronomical amounts of energy, <laughs> like 4,000 megawatts by 2014, 5,000 by 2015, and Lebanon would be an energy exporter by 2018. Obviously, this didn't happen, but like at, at least in, in, in its full sense, right? Yeah. But it, it did happen in part, right? So th- there were certain parts of the plan that were implemented. The main, the main goal was to plug the hole. And so they, they wanted to have like new plants in Zouk, Gie, uh, Der Amar, uh, and rehabilitate other plants in other parts of the country. Um, and the Zouk and Gie ones uh, were built. Uh, like the, the additions were built. Der Amar 2 uh, was not built. We'll talk more about that. Yeah, the Der Amar plant might actually be built soon because it was originally contracted in 2013 but then there was um, the whole project was uh, halted because of a conflict between the Ministry of Finance and the company about who's going to pay the VAT because the contract is very ambiguous about that Mm. so VAT is 49 million dollars and the company said you have to pay it the Ministry of Finance said we're not giving you the money so they took Lebanon to an international arbitration court and Apparently, they would have made us pay $350 million in penalties and compensation. So recently, very recently, earlier this year, the Ministry of Energy reached an agreement with the company that they will not um, make us pay this money. So they will withdraw their um, lawsuit. In return, the contract will change from an EPC contract, which is where uh, the company builds a plant and then gives it to the state without making profit afterwards, just profit from the construction itself, to a BOT, Build, Operate and Transfer contract, where the company actually operates it for 20 up to 25 years, makes all the profit and then gives it to the government. So it becomes a governmental property afterwards. So it's a very different form of privatization or private-public partnership. And so, like, we're we finally maybe seeing this issue resolved now, but it should have been resolved like way back, you know, five years ago or something like yeah, that. Yeah, and it right? will cost us more money. Yeah. So yeah, we we had sort of this partial implementation of the Basile plan. Um, the the plans to refurbish existing plants didn't really happen, and, and the longer term plan was also didn't really happen. It was to like build large plants that would run on natural gas. Uh, and we don't really know why all of this didn't happen, but obviously it all comes back to the politics. There was some issue with the politics that didn't quite work. And and I think that's sort of like the overarching story of the electricity sector in Lebanon, right? Is that the authorities that be, the political powers that be, couldn't agree with each other on how to do things or who was going to get the contracts or who was going to make money off of this, right? And yeah. so nothing ended up happening or little end up, less than what should have happened, happened, right? Yep. So one of the interesting things about this, though, is that we actually have seen some success in renewables, mm-hmm. uh, right? Uh, with um, wind farms, photovoltaic and stuff like this. And uh, according to... Uh, Jill Amin, who is uh, an expert, works with renewables with the UNDP uh, here with the Lebanese government. This has largely happened because it sort of flies under the radar mm-hmm. politically, right? There's no fuel involved. There's like the, these sort of money issues don't really exist uh, to the same degree as they do with renewables. So uh, you're, you see uh, these uh, wind farms up in Akkar, for instance, getting built, actually, and uh, Lebanon has committed to making 12% of its production come from renewables by 2020. Mm-hmm. Now, we're probably not going to hit that, uh, but but Amin says, like, maybe we'll get to like 9 or 10 or so uh, percent by then, which is pretty impressive and pretty interesting, but also interesting to note that the reason is because the politics is less involved in yeah, the sector. That's very right? interesting indeed. 
So, like, sort of wrapping up then, since 2010, since this whole thing sort of, like, kicked off again, we've actually seen about 750, or, sorry, sorry, 715 megawatts of additional capacity added to the grid. Mm -hmm. uh, and, like, half of this is from the power barges. Then another, like, 40% is from, like, the new plants at Zouk and Jie. And then, like, around 10% from upgrades at Deramar and Zahrani. And then in addition to this, uh, in August of last year, Lebanon made a deal with Syria to boost its import capacity to around 300 megawatts. And earlier this year, the Syrian ambassador to Lebanon, Ali Abdel Karim Ali, said that Damascus was ready to up that to 350 megawatts and said, well, we could even up that to 850 or even 1,000 megawatts, uh, but certain uh, the network would have to be upgraded in order for that to happen. Yeah. So the interesting thing about this is that we have this potential solution out there that's sitting right next door. Uh, and, and I think that this is something that maybe we'll have to talk about again later is that Syria does offer a lot of potential solutions to intractable Lebanese problems, not only in the electricity sector, but also in say the trash, uh, solid waste management. Syria has got a lot of space uh, in Lebanon. Nobody wants a, a, a landfill in their backyard, but Syria's got a lot of space for that. So as Syria, as the Syrian war comes to a close, then Syria has a lot of things that it could sort of offer Lebanon if Lebanon wanted a deeper relationship and wanted to solve these problems. But then we go into even bigger and more interesting kind of political dynamics that we we'll oh, talk yeah. about yeah, when, yeah, yeah, <laughs> when yeah. they happen. Right. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, so like drawing back, uh, like zooming back out, we we have our main issues. We, on the technical side, we have to increase production, yeah. right, by a lot. And then we also need to fix the network, right? The transmission network is not great. And then on the economic side of things, we have to eliminate theft. Uh, we, we have to improve collection, although this is a much smaller problem. And then we have to raise tariffs, right? Because it right now it's something like it, it costs... Uh, EDL, something like 17 cents per kilowatt hour to produce, uh, but it charges like half that. And so... Yeah. These are the subsidies that we talked about. Exactly, exactly. So they have to be like reformed. And, yeah, and, and and actually in the 2018 budget, a mechanism was put in place to raise the tariffs, mm -hmm. right? But, and this is the problem, in order to raise the tariffs, you have to get to... Uh, 20 to 22 hours per day of electricity distribution, and then EDL is allowed to raise the tariff by 42%. Uh, okay. And this causes this weird catch-22, though, right? Because until you get to that 20 to 22 hours of production, you're putting more money in, you're losing more money. Mm -hmm. Every time you uh, produce more electricity, you're, you're losing all of this extra money. And so it's either, it's sort of like a go big or go home type thing, right? Yeah. Like if you do a piecemeal, it just, things get more expensive and more expensive and more expensive until finally you sort of reach that, that cliff, you know, and you're, you're able to raise your tariffs, exactly. right? Yeah, and in, in the meantime, though, Lebanon's needs uh, for electricity are rising every year, something like 3 to 5%, right? Exactly. And so it, it seems to me like the sort of piecemeal approach that we've been doing isn't really going to work. You What you need, you need to go big. And for that, you need a political consensus, right? Yeah. Like An a real plan, plan that, that everybody gets behind, not just exactly. one minister saying it, but you need you need a consensus amongst the political class. And I think it makes sense because if you tell people now that you will charge them more for electricity while they are paying a second bill for the gener private generators, it makes absolutely no sense. And it's very like politically sensitive to. And, and this is another another issue with us, right? The, the generator so-called mafia, right? Yeah. 
we we know that the generator uh, owners they have political connections, uh, and we know that there have been like certain issues uh, that they control like pr private electricity provision in some neighborhoods that they have deals with each other so that they don't compete and the prices don't go down that they pay more than what the ministry tells them they can get. Yeah, yeah, and 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 not to say that these problems are intractable. I mean, obviously, mm. like what we have 24 hour electricity in Kessler Way and reportedly now. So these things can be solved, but it takes political will in order to solve them. Yeah. So how do we actually get to this point? How do we how do we fix things? How do, how do we get everybody on board behind a political plan? What what are the ways forward for this? Yeah, this, I think, is the big question. And often in conversations about solutions for the electricity sector, this political aspect is kind of minimalized, especially when people are talking about um, privatization as the solution, which is very, very common um, yeah. among uh, establishment political parties, but also among new groups like the political party Sabah, which has in its platform a plan to privatize electricity production and distribution and introduce uh, market dynamics to the sector as a way of like ending monopoly, ending government monopoly, and therefore reducing costs and reducing prices and getting rid of the deficit uh, associated with the sector. So this is a very common kind of assumption that privatizing would actually... Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, if you look at the history of state involvement in the sector, it hasn't exactly gone swimmingly, right? So why not try the private sector? I hear you, but the issue is that actually the involvement of the private sector itself in the electricity sector in Lebanon has been even more problematic. Because if you look at even good plans like building the Deir Ammar plant, uh, it's a plan that cost us a lot of money and that changed from one point to another because of a VAT problem. And now we have to not only pay more, but also we have to lose the ownership of the plant for 20 years. The private sector is not like a bunch of nice people. It's a bunch of people with profit interests. And right. like the large companies are the companies that get contracts for sectors such as electricity. So in the context of Lebanon, we're talking about large companies with political connections. These are the companies that will get the contracts. So they are not like um, some kind of pure component in this game that would not have like crony interests. Right, right. The people who control the politics and the people who control the private sector are the same people. Exactly. Right? So you're never going to have like this purely theoretical, like the, this purely theoretical private sector doesn't exist. Exactly. Like the case where arguably the conflict between Tahsin Khayyat, who owns Al Jadid and who also owns Middle East Power, that operates the plants of GE and Zouk, the extensions of the two plants, had a conflict with the Ministry of Finance, um, which is controlled by Berri through Ali Hassan Khalil, and therefore the operation of these uh, new plants um, did not were not actually launched till two years after they were scheduled. Mm. So this is a private sector matter, and it's not working well. The power barges are also a private sector solution, and they're not perfectly working. You also have the issue of electricity of Zahli being the solution that everyone discusses as right. like privatize it like Zahli did. Well, they have 24-hour electricity. Yeah, but yeah. the reason why they have 24-hour so hours, it is working in terms of how many hours of electricity you're getting, but also most people have 24 hours of electricity if you count private generators. The only difference is that in Zahli, the company that has the concession from the state to get the electricity from EDL and then redistribute it for a higher price which itself is a source of profit. So they pay like 50% of the amount of money that they charge customers for the electricity because of this old concession that they have from 
EDL. So this is why they were able to make profits not only on their privately generated electricity, but also on state electricity that's supposed to reach consumers for, for a lower price. So, this so essentially, they're, they're, they're basically raising the tariff up to what it should be. What it should be in market terms. Right. Exactly. Right, right. But this is how they did it because of the concession, partly. Which doesn't exist in all areas, it only exists right, in Right, which I think we should explain, like, the, yeah, the concession is a special, like, legal vehicle uh, that you're, you're allowed to, like, produce and, and distribute electricity in certain areas. And there, there's only, like, four of them, or six yeah. of them, or something in the entire country. There's a very small the, number. The real ones are just, like, two in Zahli and Jbail, where companies are able to distribute to uh, have the monopoly over distribution in their areas. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're not counting, like, the Junier Téléphérique concession. <laughs> right, <not>. yeah. <laughs> Okay, so if we don't go with a private sector solution, though, how do we fix the public sector one? I think, in my opinion, it's always the same thing. It's the state has to invest in new plants and better networks. And obviously, it will outsource some of these construction and other processes to private sector companies, which is what happens everywhere all the time, because the state does not have the technical capacities or the manpower to actually do this. But the difference is that privatization does not change the basic problems that we talked about today, which is the lack of power generation capacity and the issues with the networks. Privatization does not solve the quality of electricity networks across the country. You need state investment in better yeah. electricity networks. At some point, the state has a role to play. Exactly. Regardless of whether you go the private or the public route. Definitely. Right. And especially when you get to politically sensitive, sensitive things, like, for example, the issue with generators or the issue with electricity theft, which is also often politically covered. How would a private company deal with that? Then you would get into another issue with different private companies being owned by different people and operating within areas where they have political connections to local zaims. And there mm. you get into a new realm of political corruption. And this, I don't think, is what we are looking for. I mean, I mean, regardless of, of, of which way you go with this, you have to get the political buy-in, right? And, and that's sort of the, the, the major impasse. It's not like, oh, if we just privatized everything, everything would be great, right? Exactly. No, you still need, like you say, like the state still has this role and you need like a political consensus Definitely. to back that role up. Otherwise, everything's just going to go to shit. Yeah. yeah, that's the only way we can fix things if the politicians agree on a solution. Did we just solve the electricity crisis? No, because we're not the politicians. Oh. <laughs> well, you not yet. <laughs> okay, all right. Uh, I think that's all the time we have for this week. I, I hope that we were able to explain, like, a, a bit, like, cut through some of the craziness that's going on in the electricity sector. Because it is, it, it, like, there are so many details that can be really overwhelming at times. But I feel like, fundamentally, it's a pretty easy sector and concept to grasp. Like, the, the fundamentals are there, they don't really change. You know, we've got this deficit, we need to do X, Y, Z. The reason that we don't do X, Y, Z is because there's no agreement to do X, Y, Z, exactly. right? Uh, so I, I, I hope that that came across. Um, and of course, we're gonna be back with, uh, with another topic next week. Until then, I'm Benjamin Red. I'm Nizar Hassan. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. The Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar El-Fil.